When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Farah Jassat. And me, Daniel ben Koren. Daniel produced this week's podcast. Daniel, what was it about? This week we have Eric Kaufman, the Birkbeck politics professor, in conversation with Razia Iqbal on the end of white majorities. So Eric Kaufman has done a lot of work on the future of the racial divide in our societies and what's going to happen when white people in Western societies become a minority. It's quite a spicy and controversial topic, and we hope you enjoy listening to the episode. And if you're interested in attending any Intelligence Squared events, do check out our website, which gives you a list of what's coming up at intelligencesquared.com. And we're giving a special 20% discount to our podcast listeners. Just type in the promo code PODCAST at the checkout. Hello, I'm Razia Iqbal. I'm a journalist for the BBC. Welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. Welcome, Eric. Hello. Hello, Razia. Um, let's start, um, Eric, with the title, because the premise of this book is to do with demographics and a prediction that you cast much into the future, 100 years from now. Outline that premise for us. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's really two meanings to that term white shift. The first is a sort of shorter term uh, meaning which is going to happen in our lifetimes. And that's the decline of white ethnic majorities across Western countries and the kind of populist and polarized politics that that will produce, but or I'm predicting that that will produce. But secondly, longer term, uh, I'm predicting the second meaning of white shift, which is that white majorities will, through voluntary intermarriage, uh, absorb large numbers of, of people who aren't white into a mixed race majority occurring sort of in the early part of next century. Um, so that's kind of the second meaning. And that will, to some extent, resolve some of the tensions we see now. Well, let's talk about the tensions then, because you identify very clearly that in the short term, the, the conflict between those who want to prevent 
the big shift that you're talking about that's going to happen. And those who want to um, uh, accelerate it will become the, the fault line uh, in politics. Yes. So I, yeah, I do argue that the sort of older left-right economic fault line between sort of people who want to redistribute wealth and those who want uh, lower taxation will give way to some extent to a sort of, if you like, a cultural, culture wars type of fault line between, some have called it open-closed. I don't necessarily like that terminology. People who uh, prefer sort of cosmopolitanism, diversity, change and those who prefer sort of uh, less change, more continuity, more homogeneity. I mean that and really when we look at populist voting with large-scale survey data or experiments as I have, those are the factors that tend to correlate best with populist right voting, not the economic factors to do with income or class or or occupation. Right. So let's then look at how you have outlined and explored all of this in the context of uh, the two big things that have happened uh, in recent history. So Trump uh, making it to the White House and the Brexit vote here in the United Kingdom. Uh, Outline in a little more detail, if you would, what it is that you think proves your point that it's not economic factors. It's not inequality. Social inequality isn't the thing that's resulted in these big things. But in fact, it is identity politics. Right. Yes. So very much uh, identity threat amongst conservative uh, populations within the two countries, particularly conservative white populations. Um, So you can do this on large scale surveys where you try and ask what what, you know, answers to which questions correlate best with saying, I support Trump or or I voted for Brexit. And, and clearly, um, immigration was central. I mean, if you ask people, you know, do they want immigration to be reduced? Uh, it's about 90% for people who voted leave versus only 40% for remain. That's a 50-point difference. And similarly, in the US, there's a sort of 50-point gap between those who voted for Trump and those who voted for Clinton amongst white Americans. That's sort of amongst the largest gap we see on any question. Uh, whereas if you take class or income, uh, there's all, essentially in the Trump vote, there's no difference between poor and rich white Americans on their propensity to vote for Trump. And in the Brexit vote, there is a slight difference. So poorer white British people are somewhat more likely to have voted leave, but that's a much smaller effect than most of the sort of important cultural variables, not just immigration, support for death penalty as well would be much more predictive than income or class. I mean, I'm really interested in the fact that you're pushing back against what is the prevailing thought that these people voted this way because they felt that they were not being heard or that they'd been forgotten in some way. And the idea that they've been forgotten has always been couched in economic terms. But you're saying that this is much more to do with some threat that they personally feel that they connect to their ethnic group disappearing in some way? Well, yeah, or or perhaps the country they know changing faster than they would like it to in cultural terms. And and I think the economic, I mean, you can see the impact by comparing two events, really, which is the, the economic crisis of 2007-8 and the migrant crisis of 2015. I mean, if we're talking about Europe, you can see that the financial crisis had no real impact on populist right voting whereas the migrant crisis had an enormous impact. And I think that's kind of a natural experiment where you can test those two arguments. Um, and yeah, so I think the left-behind the, the left behind argument is quite convenient for politicians on all sides of the political spectrum. Clearly, uh, populist right parties or, or the Leave campaign would would like to couch this as revolt of the Davids against Goliath of the left-behind. And similarly, 
the mainstream parties, what they know how to talk about is how to shift money around to, to areas that may have received a lot of immigrants or talking about creating jobs or redistributing wealth. So I think those sorts of easy traditional economic levers have played a big part in this narrative which people have bought into that it's about somehow the left behind. But actually, that's not what we see in the data. So it's not what we see in the in the data. But, but I wonder to what extent you have then made a decision to focus on white people as an ethnically distinct group. And there are problems inherent in doing that. So, so let's first of all talk about the, the choice that you have made based on the data to focus on this group. I mean, I do also talk about minorities, which is quite interesting. And maybe we can get into that later because they're manifesting a lot of the same well, conservative minorities are manifesting many of the same responses. So I don't necessarily think it's strictly only about white people, but I do think that it's you know primarily driven by them. When I say white, I okay, so there are two meanings of the term white. One is sort of a piece of the color spectrum, if you like, like a color like blue or green or, you know, it's got fuzzy boundaries. It's relatively... Scientifically speaking, uh, white isn't a color though, right? No, but I'm oh, sorry, <laughs> a, right. But a piece of... Uh, <laughs> If you imagine sort of phenotypes and, and racial characteristics, they're in a continuum and, and the piece that we decide to call white. That's right. one meaning of it. But the other is is a sort of proper name for an ethnic group. Now, so in this country, you could – instead of using white English, you might say ethnic English or instead of talking about white Swedes, you could talk native Swedes. But there are problems with using those terms as well. Uh, and so I, I sort of – and in the US, of course, white American does cover essentially what is the ethnic majority group which is essentially an intermarriage of, of Italians, Irish, and other groups into largely intermarried uh, entity. Um, so yeah, I'm focusing on that partly because I think there's a lot of been a lot of attention on nation and nation state as the category, which I also talk about, which is the t the entire territorial political unit. But what is often missed and what is becoming more apparent, particularly with the Trump vote, is the importance of the ethnic attachments of members of majority groups and that that is a separate thing from the nation state and has a separate dynamic. OK, but but you're not what you're also arguing is that politicians aren't necessarily buying into this, this argument about the the fact that these uh, the, the white ethnic group is feeling lost and unlistened to. In fact, they're using different arguments for setting out their policy policies on immigration and social equality and so on. You're arguing something quite different. You're saying they're ignoring this group. I think they're gravitating to a sort of materialist rationale for restriction of immigration. So it's pressure on services or it's comp competition for jobs driving down wages or it's security and terrorism or crime or something of this nature. You see that a lot with Trump. And I'm arguing, yes, that that isn't actually what's driving. What's driving in a lot of this is attachment to a way of life, to, to a way things are, to own group. And we know from the social psychology literature, that's actually dis a distinct orientation from hostility to outgroups. What I worry about with this reframing is, while on the surface it seems more enlightened because it's about the state, actually it tends to sort of single out, out groups more by, say, talking about Muslims as a security threat, for example, which you could say is an acceptably liberal thing to do because you're talking about women's rights and, and uh, anti-Semitism and, and whatever else you want to bundle it within this defense of liberalism, which is bound up with the state. But yet that's not the main motivation for most of the voters. And I actually think it leads to worse policy outcomes rather than 
facing up to what is the issue and, and finding an accommodation. I'm interested in this idea that, that the politicians are ignoring it because for a lot of people, if you were looking at the the kind of conventional framework of left-right politics, a lot of people on the left would argue, well, actually, politicians are completely and utterly couching this in the context of ethno-nationalism, white ethno-nationalism, but they're not saying it. They're not actually saying we're looking after this particular interest group as opposed to this one. I think there's definitely some truth to that. I think, however, there's a lot of attacks on outgroups. I mean, if you look at Wilders in the Netherlands talking about Moroccans or Trump on talking about Muslims and Mexicans, I mean, there is a focus on the outgroup, which I don't think you would need you know, wouldn't be necessary really if you were talking about, okay, here's a group that, uh, an eth- you know, the ethnic group or a group that sees the nation in a particular way that wants to sort of slow down the rate of change. They don't dislike anybody. Let's have a discussion about how fast that rate of change should be. I mean, I think that's, and some would say, well, we need it quicker for the economy and others would say, yes, but we we don't want to, things to change so rapidly. We need time for people to assimilate, etc. You can then come to an agreement about pace of change. Once you start saying, well, you can't discuss that. You, we, you only have to couch it in terms of the economy and you start stigmatizing people as putting pressure on the welfare state, which we know is, is generally not true, or uh, terrorism or all these other kind of, to some degree, made up rationales. I agree there's obviously some purchase in them, but I think that's more negative. It leads to a more sort of a, a discussion which I think is more hostile to outgroups, whereas I think it was just couched in terms of it's just a matter of, of um, slowing things down in terms of because of attachments that people have to their particular culture and ethnic group. Do, do you not think it's dangerous to talk about white identity in the way that you do, which not just polarises the argument immediately, but it also suggests that somehow white groups in different societies in the West have been ignored, when in fact we know that the entire history of Western culture is underpinned by the primacy of the majority white group? Yes, absolutely. There's no doubt about that. And there's no doubt about the fact that that what 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 whites did in terms of slavery and Jim Crow and 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 the, you know discrimination is is real and and it still hasn't entirely gone away. I, I think that's all correct, but I think that at the same time we can't uh, the argument that there's something inherently toxic in the DNA of of this particular group and it is an ethnic group in terms of the way it intermarries and behaves and even in terms of the cultural products it consumes. I, I think to to sort of deny recognition of this group is in many ways more dangerous. I mean, I think we, certainly as the group declines, it's going to become more and more obvious uh, that, that there is you know, no discussion around this group's identity, that this is seen as a negative. And I do think, you, I think groups can change. I mean, I think the, if we think about Christianity and, and the history of anti-Semitism or Protestantism and the history of anti-Catholicism, which runs right up until, you know, John F. Kennedy, 1960. I mean, this is a long, long history in both cases. And yet I don't think we would say that you can't kind of have a Christian or a Protestant identity. I can't express that. I mean, because of the, the, the dark history. I, I think a lot of, you know, lots of groups have episodes in their past which are negative. I think it's possible to have a reconstructed and open and moderate form. What I'm trying to aim at is sort of a more moderate form, open intermarriage, rather than a sort of hardline, rigid kind of white nationalism, which is the danger, really. I think that's gaining more traction. I think rather 
to have something that is fuzzy at the edges, you know, open to assimilation and moderate. But when you talk about the more extreme end of it gaining traction, it is argued, arguable that a respected academic like yourself talking about these issues in the way that you are is actually giving agency to those people who say we are not being taken seriously, too much concession is being made to smaller minority ethnic groups and therefore we should be listened to much more. And that, of course, if you take it one step further, leads to the idea that white supremacist I thinking and ideology is perfectly acceptable, that you're, you're actually allowing it and making it respectable. Yeah, I guess I would see it somewhat differently. I would see it almost as a way of kind of heading off that threat that that by saying because it become very clear that opposition to minorities is 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 racism it's it's absolutely wrong attachment to one's own group is fine however has to be moderate and you cannot discriminate for example uh, in a way that would result in unequal treatment of, of individuals. I think any ideology, of course, including civic nationalism, by the way, if taken to an extreme socialism religion, can lead to nasty results. We've seen that in the 20th century. So, for example, with civic nationalism, I mean, you could have a, a non-ethnic civic nationalism based purely on a set of values, which says that but groups that don't abide by these values are, uh, you know, we can't tolerate them. And so that's happened as well in the 20th century. And and what we find in is studies of genocide show that there's no actual – it's any exclusivist ideology that says any all members of the nation must be X. That could be an ethnic ideology, a socialist ideology, a civic nationalist ideology. That's the danger, the extremism. So what I'm saying is a moderate version that allows for different ethnic groups to thrive and flourish, a pluralistic uh, society – is absolutely fine. So I don't think there's anything intrinsic in this particular particularistic identity that makes it more dangerous than any other identity. Really. So, so what you're talking about is defined as symmetric multiculturalism. Yes. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. That. That. And I actually think that might actually make more members of the majority understand minorities to some extent better in their desire to identify with their culture and their identity. But you also say something that will. Uh, upset and has upset quite a lot of people in that when you look at the the, the, the central section of your book looks at how uh, what we could now in shorthand describe as political being politically correct that there was a whole movement that that has led to the populism and the rise of populism that we see now at and you go even so far as to say that you don't you don't accept that structural racism actually exists. So let's talk first of all about the the, the fact that you're accusing the whole movement in the 20th century post the Second World War, which looked at protecting minorities, creating legislation that protected minorities and so on. You think that that taken to its nth degree has resulted in the rise of populism now? Yeah, I mean, let me let me be clear. I'm very supportive of the equal rights, protection of minorities, anti-racism, all of that. I I think has been in a huge leap for mankind. So I'm not saying that that you know this, that, that that this is negative. What I'm saying is, when you expand the definition of a term, which I think occurs sort of post the mid '60s, the the expansion in the definition of a term such as racism to encompass things such as national identity or immigration. I do think was a was an important contributing factor in some countries, not so much in Britain, but in, say, Sweden and Germany, in the United States, it made it essentially impossible for mainstream parties to talk about reducing levels of immigration 
in, in you know in political campaigns without being accused of being racist. Now, what that does is it simply opens a space. If no one's actually talking about an issue that people are are interested in or that there's a demand for, it opens a space for a political entrepreneur who is maybe going to be less attuned to the norms of public, you know, propriety and maybe it may be extreme in some way. So it allows the populist right in. So I well, think hang, that's... Hang on yeah. just one second. I just want to pick you up on, on a couple of those things. So, for example, post the Second World War, immigration into this country and post the 1960s and 70s, immigration into Germany was an economic desirability. I mean, people wanted, for example what they became known as guest workers from Turkey to go into Germany and people from the Caribbean to come to this country and so on. That that, that was welcomed. And and also when you look at the the um, immigration as a result of um, disasters, you know, the Vietnamese boat people, nobody said, oh, we can't have these people, whereas something has shifted that has made people go, actually, we don't want one and a half million Syrians in Germany anymore. We don't want any immigrants to come into this country post the 2015 migration crisis. So I wonder how you account for for that shift. Well, I think partly it's a scale issue. I mean, I think it's also it's about the the degree of transformation being greater. But also, I think yeah, with a million. I mean, if you look at the German situation, I mean, there's been a paper that that looks at this, that in fact, as the numbers rose on a monthly basis, that sort of translated into AFD support in a pretty tight Alternative correlation. Alternative for Deutschland, the right wing party. Yes, yeah. and, and, and I think that if the mainstream parties had been able to get hold of this issue and, and to deal with it, then there would have been less, there simply wouldn't have been the space for AFD or, or for the Sweden Democrats in Sweden. Now, that's not to say the mainstream should always cater to political demand. So I don't want to assert that case. So in the US case of George Wallace, who was a segregationist who got 13.5%, very right for the mainstream parties to say, we're not going to touch that because that's a violation of the civil rights of African Americans, the right to equal treatment. I think levels of immigration is something quite distinct from treating people equally under the law. And there, I think the mainstream parties that this anti-racist norm around immigration actually was negative in the sense it constrained the mainstream parties, didn't allow them to respond. Now, they are have since the populist right has emerged, they have then responded and to some to greater and lesser degree of success managed to erode uh, populist right vote share. So, I mean, I think, again, this is about what I would argue is, is it's partly about volume and pace of change. So we know that in a study was done in nine out of 10 West European countries. The level of net migration t- tends to correlate with uh, rise in populist right vote share between 2005 and 2016. And this sort of works through what we call the salience of immigration, which is how high a priority is immigration amongst other issues you care about, like healthcare or the economy. As migration rises, it's not so much that people change their attitudes from being pro-immigration to anti. In fact, there's not much change, but it's the people who already want want a reduction. Immigration goes up their priority list, and that's what gives uh, the populist right its opening. Let's just take a pause just for a few seconds. One of the things that I really want to pick pick you up on is that the pace of change, when you talk about the pace of change, there clearly has been a huge shift. Let's look at the United States and the traction that a candidate like Pat Buchanan, for example, got when he first stood as a candidate for the Republican Party and the sorts of things that he said and how he was standing against one Donald Trump. Um, and I, I wonder if you can just tell us that story, because it's quite clear that something really quite phenomenal has changed. Buchanan, in some ways, was was Trump of all the letter. I mean, he was sort of in 92 and 96. He did quite well. And part of his 
um, message was about border control. The, however, I still think people overplay this because even though part of his message was about border control, that was actually not as central um, to his pitch as Trump. I mean, he's talked a lot about uh, religious right issues, for example, um, in a way that Trump did not. So it's not a perfect analogy, but he was a sort of populist outsider. What's interesting, of course, was, yes, Trump in 2000, actually, this was at the Reform Party convention when he sort of accused Buchanan of being an anti-Semitic and against immigration and 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 saying that, you know, he's he's going to scare away everyone who wants to come into this country. I think that sort of tells you a lot about Trump and the kind of flip-flopping that he's done over the years. It's not clear that there's a core ideology there. But yeah, kind of an interesting side side it, note. It, it, it is, but only because, I mean, I'm interested in in particular because Trump has clearly embraced a lot of the ideas uh, of much more extreme white nationalist groups, even if he doesn't frame it in that way. We saw what happened in Charlottesville. We saw how he responded to white supremacists walking through a town saying Jews will never replace us and him talking about how people on both sides had behaved badly. Now, in, in that context, I wonder how you would you would defend what it is that you're arguing for, that politicians should take this stuff on head on. And and in fact, they are in lots of countries. We know they are in European countries, in the United States. But what that's resulting in is giving the extremists an absolute passport, an open door to behaving the way that they want. It's normalising a kind of, not a kind of, a racism. It's normalising racism. Well, I, I would certainly agree with, with you on Trump. I mean, he said racist things, talking about Mexicans, um, you know, rapists, you know, singling out Muslims. So I'm and, and Charlottesville. So I'm certainly not going to sit here and, and defend Donald Trump, who's a very flawed individual. What I talk about mainly in the book, though, are the forces that are that led to him being elected. And one of those was the fact that both major parties didn't really do anything about immigration even though it was sort of both illegal, but particularly illegal immigration, despite paying lip service to it. And so this sort of allowed, again, there's a risk. You're talking about normalization. I would still make the argument that if mainstream parties are not addressing these issues, so one argument is to say if they address the issues, they normalize them and that helps the far right. I would argue that the chronology actually backs the alternative explanation, which is by not addressing the issues, they open space for the far right to come in. And so that's, and I guess a lot of this turns on your view of what's driving this. And one view is that people are sort of relatively blank slates. And so whatever information they get is the way they're going to think about issues. And in which case the normalization hypothesis would make sense. Uh, However, I think the evidence, I haven't seen proper evidence for the normalization hypothesis. It's often asserted, but there's very little evidence that I can, that you can see. What you actually see is these populist right parties surging often when mainstream parties are not actually uh, addressing these issues. So I guess my view is, and in a way this stems to some extent from the political psychology with work of Karen Stenner and others on right-wing authoritarianism, which argues that these value orientations are deep-seated and up to up to 50% heritable, actually. Whether someone prefers change, difference, dissent, diversity, or they prefer order uh, and stability is, is, is high, highly heritable, in which case you can't, you know, coming in and saying that you can just change that person's mind, actually there's often a blowback if you try and do that. I think you have to try and find a way to sort of work with them but yet create 
the tolerant society. But isn't it true? I mean, you're not taking into account two things. First of all, that under uh, under Obama, immigration was stemmed to a large degree, and people don't look at the data where that is concerned, particularly immigration from um, Central America. Secondly, you don't seem to take into account that actually the backlash against Obama having been elected twice and the fact that he was an African-American, however however much the left applauds that as symbolically amazing and brilliant and a sign of America changing, the backlash against his presence in the White House could account for a large part of the rise of Trump. Yeah, it could. But I, I again, I don't think the data bears that out. I mean, don't forget he was elected twice and there was a significant number of Obama voters uh, who switched to Trump in 2016, who voted for Obama but didn't vote for Clinton. If you look at who switched, who was an Obama voter and switched to Trump, who was a non-voter and switched to Trump, these were generally people who were, you know, who, for whom immigration was a key issue. And even though there's no question that Obama's election, the, the main effect it has had is amongst lower educated people who didn't know which parties were, who, who essentially were, uh, had conservative racial views and couldn't figure out which party represented those views because they were politically relatively illiterate. And, and to some extent, Obama, Obama served as a signal to those voters as to which party to vote for. That was already baked in by the time of 2012. Okay. To explain the rise of Trump, you have to, I think, look at sort of a new phenomenon. And this, I think very much the immigration issue tells us more than the black-white issue, which is really a much older issue in American politics. But but it still is. I mean, race still is a, a fundamental fault line in not just the United States, but the more immigration there is, it becomes a fault line in other countries too, as we're seeing in in, in European populist uh, movements. But I, I, I mean, I, I wonder the extent to which you would accept the criticism that's levelled at you about not accepting that structural racism does exist, because you're arguing that that the political correctness that has stopped people from saying these things are wrong, uh, also hides, it kind of masks uh, the fact that enough progress has been made and that these minority groups are now fine and it's now time for white ethnic groups who have been forgotten to be made equal to those minority groups almost. Well, I, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't argue that case. I think a lot of these things are not either or. It's a question of where in the shades of grey do we go. So we, right. I still would be in favour of monitoring you know, uh, minority progress in organizations. Are they being underrepresented? Let's look at, uh, you know, the resume studies which come out, which I think are very valuable and, and I cite in the book, which clearly show there's a problem still. So I'm, I certainly wouldn't argue that we don't have a problem of uh, discrimination still. It's, but it's more, I mean, I think the resume studies would show that, particularly against those with Muslim names, you know, that those show a significant payback, a penalty in terms of callbacks to on resume studies. I mean, that to me is... Is clear evidence. Now, the, the issue is what you do about it, right? And, and so that's where we could talk about, you know, I would be in favor, at least initially, of doing things like anonymizing CVs or getting rid of interviews or doing things that might remove whatever incentive there is to discriminate. The other thing I, sh I should say, however, on the discrimination front is that what we no study has sort of found that minorities are less likely than whites to discriminate against minorities. So the the way I, you know, for example, African-American police officers will shoot African-Americans at higher rates than white police officers or taxi firms aren't picking up blacks. These are mainly Latino and Asian cab drivers or African-American cab drivers. 
So I'm, I don't think framing this as a sort of white on non-white issue or is, is the best way to frame it. I think it's all groups interacting with all groups. And yes, whites tend to be advantaged in those interactions. But I think I would rather this be framed as all groups need to look at how they are treating all groups and, and try and check their biases. Uh, so I'm very much in favor of that. I'm, I'm certainly not – I don't buy the argument that whites are discriminated against economically. No, I, I wouldn't say that. And in fact, if you look at – no, it's true on the Trump uh, – in the Trump vote in particular, this perception that whites are being discriminated against is a major predictor of the Trump vote. But if you break that down, a lot of the – in research I've done quite recently, most of that is around the way p- people feel whites are, are portrayed in film, in media, in universities, etc. That that is – that cultural – treatment of this group is much more the issue than the uh, perception that they're discriminated against in employment. Uh, okay, so, so so let's explore that a little right. further. So in, in what way do you think whites are discriminated? Well, I certainly don't think they're discriminated against economically, as I mentioned. I, I, I think, though, the, the way, you know, for not being able to express an identity, I mean, would be one example, or 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 defend particular int- a group interest, or. But if you accept yeah. that whites are already that already have primacy, and they do, they continue to have primacy. It's not like they're under under threat of extinction in any way. Certainly right. not in no, no. the medium or even the long term, because we're talking about a century here uh, that sure. you're predicting. So, in what way, in what way are they unable to express their identities? Well, I mean, they're unable, obviously, to form, you know, to form a, a a club for you know white Americans on campus would not be. It's generally not an acceptable thing to do, or to you know. And to, you're saying uh, that that should be okay. I think it should be okay. Yeah, um, as long as and it, it's I mean, okay to have white history problem, month. Well, I mean, yeah, I don't see any problem with that. What I see a problem with is that being hijacked. You know, if you don't essentially, if being if it's hijacked by the the, the far right elements that talk about race supremacy, and and you know that's the problem. I, I think, however, a group that's been formed through the admixture of different European elements, and increasingly now non-European elements, for that group to sort of talk about its collective memories, and yeah, I, I don't see any problem with that. I think I think try to toxify it means that it can only be talked about by by the far right. And the far right says to white people, they says, look, they won't let you have an identity. Everyone else gets to have one. And white people say, yeah, that's true. And then on the back of that, which is a truth, I think, they piggyback stuff about elite Jewish liberal genocide, white genocide, all these conspiracy theories. But because there is a, a truth that people can grasp, they're able to seduce some people into that. I think that's actually quite, you know, a lot more negative. If we were able to have space for a kind of moderate group that respected other groups. I don't see the problem with that. How? What is the symbiotic relationship, though, between what you're saying and the emergence of those white um, extremist groups? Because clearly they feel that they have purchase on being able to say that. So that's come from somewhere. It hasn't come from nowhere. Well, I think I would argue that precisely because it isn't being talked about it in the mainstream, it's flourishing in the dark corners of the internet. I mean, these... If we look at the New Zealand shooter, for example, all of that discourse is occurring, you know, not in the mainstream respectable part of society. It's all online. It's been pushed into that corner. Now, you might say that if it was, you know, if there was an outlet for it in the mainstream, that that would give it more oxygen. I actually think the reverse. I actually think it would kind of flush out this debate and say, okay, let's talk about this. Let's talk about this whole white genocide 
conspiracy theory point by point. I try to do that in the book and say, well, this is clearly not true. You know, this idea that whites are, are, are being outbred is clearly not true. Here's the evidence. The problem is when you have, you know, they, there's one piece of truth, which is this idea that, that whites aren't allowed to express an identity. Others group are. Others are. And then on that foundation they can then lure people into this wider narrative. But what about the the, the place that her, that uh, a lot of people who do see this issue of uh, a way of life having been eroded or it's disappearing in some way, whether it's in this country or the United States, that their neighbourhoods don't look the way that they did, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago, um, that, that what has happened, say, for example, in this country with the emergence of uh, a group um, of UKIP and Nigel Farage, you know, the, the fact that they have occupied a space which says your country looks different. You need to get your country back. Now, that has been that has been. Um, if you like, marshalled by the Conservative Party and, and they have decided that in order to stem the tide of UKIP gaining seats in Parliament, which they have never had, right. um, they need to at least occupy some of that space. So what you're arguing is actually happening, isn't it? I mean, there are moderate voices that are discussing this. I don't think they are. I think what they're doing is they're actually say, I mean, the discourse is now moving in a very anti-Islam direction. So the direction it's gone, I think, is because they can't discuss what I'm talking about, um, they have sort of moved in the direction of sort of stigmatizing Islam because they can defend that as, oh, well, we're just protecting Western values, which is about gays and women and Jews. Right, so so that is the more acceptable direction. And I think it's actually much more negative. If they were actually able to say, well, people are concerned about rates of change, and you could say, okay, well, and, and that's if you don't stigmatize that, you say that's that's a valid way to think. Uh, but there are competing interests here, and so we're gonna we're gonna have to make an accommodation. You can't get everything that you want. You can get some of what you want. So we're not gonna have a wide open immigration door. We're gonna have slower immigration than some people want, but faster immigration than you want. And I think I don't know if people felt that they were listened to and that, that this was not stigmatized. I think that would at least make for an open, more healthier conversation. Right now, I think it's being sublimated into these avenues. Talking about pressure on services or on on jobs or talking about Islam, I well, think well, is a distraction. Not, I mean, in places like you know, in places like Italy and in Hungary, with Viktor Orban saying that they don't want any, they don't want a, they don't want their country to look different. So they are talking about the soul of a nation, the identity of a, of a nation. And I wonder what you would say to. Well, first of all, do you think there are any politicians out there who are actually embodying what you would like to see? What kind of conversation <laughs> you would like leaders to have with their with their societies? God. Not really, no. I mean, you know, you, it seems like you've got one extreme or the other. So Orban, for example, is a good example of ethnic nationalism, a kind of white nationalism that says if you're not ethnic Hungarian, you don't belong. Um, so that's, you know, that's one extreme which I would abhor. Um, yeah, I don't see, but I think there is there is interest. You know, I think there's a lot of, I speak to a lot of civil servants and the people are looking for answers because I don't think civic nationalism, this idea of British values on or it could be even neoconservatism in the American case about being defined by this muscular foreign policy. Uh, I don't think that really is the way forward uh, because it flattens identities. I, I have this concept of multivocalism in which uh, people can see in the national identity sort of what they want to see. And so you, if you want to see Britain as multicultural, 
that can be your Britain, that's fine. If you want to see it as uh, the country of your ancestors, many generations, green and pleasant land, that's fine. As long as you don't insist, this is the only way to be British. There are many ways to be British. Of course, but if a politician in power decides that they're going to change the way that Britain looks, for example, by uh, preventing uh, immigration of the kind that we have seen most recently, then that, of course, changes the discourse and the way in which the media covers it comes into play as well. Because, you know, you could argue that the media plays an absolutely central role in in all of this. You know, for example, the causation um, between what we're seeing in the rise of populism, uh, is it organic or has it been stoked by a combination of politicians and the media? Yeah, well, I think that's a very good point, and this gets back to this idea of to what extent is is our our people shaped by the messages that they receive from political elites, or to what extent are they shaped by either psychological dispositions or demographic shifts? And I think there's a bit of both. So I, there's clearly room and space for what you talk about that supply side from politicians and the media. But I think if you look at the correlations between numbers and support for populist right party, I mean these are real correlations that the number the increases really do 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 pick up those changes. So I think it's hard to say, you know, if there was no correlation between the numbers and if it really was just about sort of moral panics that were generated by the media, then it wouldn't necessarily matter what was going on with migration. You should be able to manufacture one of these things at any time. And I don't think we see that. So I'm not saying, you know, both of these are part of the story and there's no question. Uh, yeah. what, what what role do you think in uh, both Brexit and the the election of President Trump has the, the, the notion of rejecting elites? Because you mentioned elites there and, and, and it could be argued that that's what these insurgent movements, if you like, were about. They were about people saying, you don't understand us uh, to the extent that there is a collective us and there clearly is electorally in both of those cases um, and you don't understand us because you are too far removed and you're educated and you're this and you're that and and so we're going to leave the European Union and we're going to vote for Trump. Yeah, I mean that is an alternative alternative explanation which again I don't think finds a lot of support in the large-scale data set so you won't see much difference between a Trump and a Clinton voter on views of elites, for example, or resentment of elites, full stop. And similarly in this country, I mean, certainly when we compare, say, voting for, you know, the Labour or Plaid Cymru, uh, you know, for example, or the Green Party versus UKIP, I mean, it's not really necessarily about elites. It's about, to some extent, it's about which kind of elite. So Trump voters may be a bit more concerned with cultural elites and Clinton voters more with economic elites. But I think one of the possibly positive messages of this is there isn't a wholesale rejection of the system of democracy, of elites, I don't think. Uh, I think this is largely issue-driven, and it's largely around the immigration integration issue. And to, to the extent that mainstream parties are able to sort of get control of that issue, I, I actually think they'll be fine. I think the, the So I think it's something that can be addressed simply through issues and it's not a wholesale rejection of the, you know, the democratic system. So that's actually in some ways a very positive. You've nodded a little but not in enough detail about the possible solutions that politicians might have um, in their toolkit, if you like, to deal with the, the biggest problem, which is immigration. What, what, would you, what would you suggest? How do you outline in your book what politicians can do to satisfy those groups that feel under threat? 
Well, I think that the politicians need to talk about, you know, that, that in fact some people want slower change, slower cultural change, uh, that that's not a terrible thing, but that they can't have their way, you know, entirely because this is a democracy. Um, also, that, that this should be a negotiation, an accommodation between different interests. And that's the way it should be framed, a bit like the tax debate. So I say, can we, we should be able to have as calm a debate about the rate of immigration as we do about the rate of tax. The problem is, but you, you know that that's really hard. <laughs> I know it's really hard, but I think that by toxifying on both sides, incidentally, you know, from from the right, it might be seen as a sort of betrayal issue, and from the left, it might be seen as a racism issue. I think if it if it could be discussed in terms of different groups of people with different interests and preferences, and coming to a medium between them, I think that would be more healthy than erecting this into a sort of a hill that people are going to die on. So, for example, the way in which the Australians have dealt with immigration, which is essentially to not have anyone come into their country and anyone who tries to is sent to either Manus Island or, or Nauru and they're put in these really appalling conditions which we hear about all the time. Is that something that you think is the kind of thing that should happen? Well, no, I actually don't. I mean, although, so so it, I guess we've got a few issues there, right? So there's the immigration of the legal sort. There is the illegal immigration and then you've got refugee flows, right? Uh, and And of course, we don't know who's a refugee, who isn't a refugee. Now, my view on that is actually, I mean, I've said in the book that, um, you know, we, we, I actually think that facilities in Europe should be constructed, partly because I think those would be more humane than the ones in Libya and the ones in, in, in Turkey and the ones in, um, uh, well, here in, in Nauru. Um, but effectively what's occurred, because in a way, Potentially, I think the numbers, you know, the numbers of people in the world who would like to migrate to, you know, a better life is in the many hundreds of millions, according to the Gallup World Poll. So we've got an all potentially unlimited demand. There has to be some way. I don't think that Western countries are going to be able to simply absorb, you know, people who who can land on shore. So I think the question is how then, you know, there has to be some way of of, you know, I don't think you can actually process onshore or else countries will be overwhelmed. Um, I also, however, don't think you can necessarily offshore to places like Libya and Nauru because they don't have the same standards that Western countries do. So I would kind of like to see this done within Western countries. We need to allow any number of people to come to seek refuge so they're not killed in their home country. But I don't think that obligates Western countries to settle. That's the sort of line I talk about in the book, the difference between making sure everybody has a refuge but not necessarily uh, being allowed to settle. Sure, but I mean, there are people who would uh, who are economic migrants, and you've mentioned right. them. You know, the people who want to improve their their way of life, who will take as much of a risk as those who are under immediate physical threat for their lives and want to flee conflict. I'm just wondering how you would how you would sell that. For example, if you were a politician, I mean, you you rely enormously on data. Right. So if you if you were informed and you were telling policymakers what to do, what would you say to them? In terms of what? In terms of a refugee how, crisis? How would you or... how would you how would you differentiate between the person who has left, say, Eritrea? Right. You know, very closed country and very little hope for the future, and actually quite repressive, but not necessarily immediately putting your life in danger. And somebody who has fled from the, you know, the war in Syria? Well, I don't think, you know, I don't think Western countries can accept everybody who is an economic migrant. I mean, this is again back to the problem of the hundreds of millions 
Um, I the, in the book what I talk about is if you have effectively these safe and clean facilities with education, et cetera, that refugees can go to, um, you know, they can make the decision about where they feel safe, when when is right to go back. I, I however, think if you're an economic migrant, you do have to apply through the regular channels. Um, but so, even creating those facilities that you talk about costs yeah. money, right? Yes, yeah. I, and I think countries are going to have to be willing to spend that money, absolutely. So, yeah, I don't think you can do this on the cheap. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's. I, I want. I'm interested in hearing the uh, about your uh, view of the reaction to your book because th- they're clearly. There clearly are people who have disagreed with you profoundly, um, and and I wonder how you how you feel about that that disagreement. Because while as an academic, it's great to have the debate. I I, I wonder to what extent it makes an impact on you, because you're somebody who relies so much on data. A lot of the responses to you, I assume, are anecdotal. Right, right. Yeah, so there's been, as you might imagine, very vigorous responses. I mean, clearly I've had a lot of criticism from the left, or, or and but I've also had a lot of criticism from the far right. So if you go, you know, on online, you can see videos with tens of thousands of views calling me a mongrel Jew who wants to sort of bastardize the white population through mixed race. And I've had books defaced in bookstores for the same reason. Um, so I, I think, yeah, this is this is an issue, but I think it's going to be an issue that is is going to be with us for some time. It's almost structural within uh, the condition that we're in because of these demographic shifts. And I do, I guess, I'm just trying to put out there what I think, what I think the evidence shows. And yes, that is you know, that does great on certain people of of, of certain uh, disposition. But I think I'm happy to be proven wrong if people come up with survey data that shows that, you know, an economic factor correlates very strongly with this, then then I will take notice and change. Um, but I, I just think it's important to have the debate within the mainstream to have these ideas talked about. Uh, I think shutting things down is just not the way forward. It, it often pushes the debate into other places. And I'm not sure... That's a healthier uh, way to go. Have you been surprised by the reaction to your your arguments? Not really, I guess. I, I almost could have predicted both of those groups on the ends of the spectrum kind of being upset. Um, and, and who's embraced it entirely? Well, I think the sort of broad center has, I mean, has broadly embraced it. I mean, people, uh, you know, every everyone from... You know, the if we think of the Financial Times or the Sunday, well, sorry, the Telegraph and um, you know Martin, Tyler Cohen and Marginal. I, I think yes, this broad swath in the center, probably more center right than 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 on the left. But but I actually think I've been relatively pleased with with the response. I think people have kind of taken time to read it to to sort of appraise the data, to think about the arguments. They may not agree, but I think it's sort of it's it's now part of the conversation. Eric Kaufman, thank you very much. Thank for you speaking very much, Rosie. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. 
And we also use our cutting edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.